0: Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 24 to 26. Hebrews 11. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, what does faith look like? How does it work? Well, much has been written on the subject over the centuries, but better than all the pages of theological discourse, God has given us Hebrews chapter 11. Stories of the great heroes of faith, everyday examples of what faith looks like in various situations, models for us to follow as we live out the gospel by faith. So this morning we uh, jump back into the life of Moses and the example of faith that we find uh, in his life in verses 24 to 26. Let me read them. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So, morning, there's just one truth that I want us to learn here. It's very similar to the truths that we had last week, but I'll state it a little more specifically to this situation. Here it is Faith will abandon today's treasures in favor of God's promises. Faith will abandon today's treasures in favor of God's promises. We have a little saying that we all know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That little proverb with variations is found in many languages and many cultures around the world. And it's a very old proverb. We can find reference to it as far back as as the 6th century B.C., when a similar proverb was known that said, a sparrow in your hand is better than a thousand sparrows flying. The same kind of thing, isn't it? The point of this proverb is to warn us against undue risk taking that would abandon what you have in your hand for the prospect of something that's better but still out of reach. It could be paraphrased: better stick with something you already have than to pursue something you may never get. Now, this is a wise little proverb. A truism which most of us would readily embrace. But our text seems to say that Moses did not follow that wisdom. Moses abandoned treasures which he already possessed in favor of things to come that he did not possess, having only God's promise, that's all. And not only did Moses do that, but here such behavior is held before us as a model. Faith will abandon today's treasure <clears throat> in favor of God's promises. Now since we learned that principle from Moses, it raises two questions for us. Then first of all, what, mo- what treasure did Moses have to abandon, and uh, what promises did Moses cling to? So let's break down our discussion into do- those two things. <clears throat> first of all, let's think about uh, Moses' treasures Last week we talked about Moses as a baby. His parents refused to kill him as Pharaoh's edict demanded. Instead they put him in a little basket afloat in the river with his sister Miriam keeping watch. And along came Pharaoh's daughter bathing in the river, uh, saw the little basket, found the baby there, decided to keep him and named him Moses. Miriam, the quick thinking sister, offered to find a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for Pharaoh's daughter and produced Moses' own mother. So Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now we could just leave it at that. Perhaps we could add in they lived happily ever after and make it sound like a fairy tale. But it was not a fairy tale. Moses grew up in the rough and tumble of Egyptian history. So let me give you some background of Egyptian history, of what I've been able to learn. In the second millennium BC, there were four distinct periods of, Hebrew, of, of uh, Egyptian rule. The Twelfth the Dynasty, which was from uh, 1991 to 1786 BC. This was one of Egypt's strongest periods, a time of great influence in the world. It was during this time that Jacob arrived in Egypt because of the famine and found that God had prepared the way for him by sending his son Joseph there, unbeknownst to him earlier, and found food in Egypt during the 12th dynasty. Then there was a period called the Hyksos period. The Hyksos were a foreign people who came in and took over the throne. Not much is known about them. They didn't keep very good records. But it was the first of the Hyksos rulers, of whom it is written in the Bible, there arose a king who did not know Joseph. And the fate of the Hebrews changed. Then the third period was uh, what's called the 18th dynasty. This was Egypt's most influential time in the world. The Hyksos were driven out, rule was solidified, the borders were um, uh, greatly expanded, and Egypt took on empire status. Tudmos I who lived from 1539 to 1514 BC, was a key pharaoh in this time. His grandson, Thutmose III, was the greatest ruler uh, Egypt ever had. And then following that, there was a fourth uh, time, the 19th dynasty. During that 109-year period, things were almost as strong as the previous period, um, Ramses uh, ruled for most of that time. It was during that third period, the 18th dynasty which was also called the New Kingdom era that Moses lived. Tudmos I, the the pharaoh, had just one child, at least by his official wife, who survived, a daughter with this catchy girl's name, Hatshepsut. I'll try to say that. Hatshepsut. If you're looking for a girl's name, there's one. (laughs) She is almost certainly the daughter of Pharaoh who rescued and adopted Moses. Now Hapsitsun could not inherit the throne, so she married a half-brother by a lesser wife of Thutmose I, and he became Pharaoh, Thutmose II. But when her husband died, another son by a lesser wife was brought to the throne, though he was was only ten years old, that was Thutmose III. But Abhisattva challenged his reign and actually seized the power of the crown for herself for 22 years. She was a very gifted woman, and the country thrived economically under her leadership. But she was an extremely driven personality. She dressed like a man. She took advantage of every possible circumstance to claim the throne. And during those years... Uh, there was growing hostility between her and Tutmose the III, who was officially supposed to be the pharaoh, who kept getting older and growing up all the time. Finally, uh, Thutmose III retook the throne and virtually obliterated any remembrance of hath As we've said before, he eventually proved to be Egypt's strongest king ever. So where does Moses fit into all that? Well, we know that Moses was 22 years old when Thutmose III was crowned at age 10. That means he grew up until about age 12 under the reign of the very powerful Thutmose I. Then from age 12 to 22, his adopted father, Thutmose II, was the pharaoh, but he was a sickly man of a weak personality, and in reality his wife, Moses' adopted mother, Hatshepsut, was really the power behind the throne. Then it only took one year after Thutmose III was crowned, the 10-year-old, that uh, Moses' adopted mother seized the throne for the next 22 years. So Moses was in Egypt until age 40. During his adult life, his adopted mother virtually ruled Egypt. She had only one daughter who died in childhood, Leaving Moses like the only son of this driven woman. So, can you imagine the life of privilege Moses enjoyed during his childhood and early adulthood? And the high position he attained already by the age of 40? It's recorded in Acts 7, verse 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. Our text actually sums it up for us. It mentions three things that Moses enjoyed in Egypt. Status, he was known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what a daughter she was. Pleasure, he had all the pleasure money and power could buy which was a considerable amount. And thirdly, wealth. He enjoyed the treasures of Egypt. Egypt was near the pinnacle of its power and wealth, and Moses' adopted mother was in charge. Moses did not want for anything. And yet a day came. We don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly how it all played out. That Moses turned his back on everything Egypt had to offer. In faith, he abandoned the treasures of Egypt in favor of the promises of God. Back in the financial crisis of 2008, some businesses, some banks were bailed out because it was thought they were too big to fail. Sometimes I think we kind of have that mentality in regard to God's calling. God might call some people to abandon uh, their treasures and uh, uh, go and serve him, but not someone that important. Not someone that smart. Not someone that well-to-do. So we think God may send a poor, uneducated Christian to work in some slum, but not the best, the brightest. Not someone from a well-to-do, influential family. God must have better things for that person. Or or God might call someone into the ministry who didn't really have any other skills, maybe have trouble getting another job, but not someone who's smart enough to be a doctor or a lawyer. But folks... If Moses was not too big to fail, too big to waste his life on God's promises, too educated, too wealthy, too powerful to be leaving it all behind, may I suggest that neither are you? For there's no one here. In fact, I'm quite certain none of us have ever met anyone who had attained the kind of status that Moses attained in Egypt. So you and I have to grapple with the same truth, that faith will abandon today's treasures in favor of God's promises. I have no idea what you might be asked to turn your back on, but according to Jesus, everything must be on the table. For Jesus himself said, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. The treasures. Then there's the other side of this equation. The promises of God for which one might abandon today's treasures. So let's think about the promises to which Moses clung in his day. As a kind of aside here, we've been reminded recently of the moon landing uh, by the death of Neil Armstrong, the first man to set foot on the moon. Here's an interesting little fact that always fascinates me. I've heard it before. Um, Perhaps you have too. Did you know that the lunar lander that put those astronauts, actually put them on the moon, had less computer capability than the digital watch that you wear? In fact, if you have a smartphone, it has more computer capability than all of mission control had on the lunar missions, and your phone is faster. It's amazing what they did with so little compared to what we take for granted. And it's amazing what Moses did with so little knowledge compared to what you and I know. Moses could only have known the most rudimentary truths of the faith. The law had not yet been given at Mount Sinai. The scripture had not yet been written. Moses only knew what he had been taught by his birth mother, jochebed before he was old enough to be introduced into the educational system the, the, the learning of the Egyptians. What he was taught before he was weaned, probably, at age three or so. You might make a note of that if you're one of those parents who thinks that a child can't learn much in those preschool days. That's the only learning of the faith that Moses got. So what could he have known? Well, long before Moses was ever exposed to the uh, ancient Egyptian creation myths, with their many different gods, stories uh, um, a little different to accommodate different parts of the country, Moses would have heard from his mother what he later wrote in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, and it was good. And God made man in his own image, but man rebelled and sinned against God, and death came into the creation. But God promised that the offspring of that woman would someday undo the serpent's rule to restore God's creation. Moses would have heard that as a little type. And then long before Moses ever learned the long history of of Egypt, he would have heard about Father Abraham. Hundreds of years earlier, God the Creator made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants to be their God and to claim them as his own people. God promised to give them the land of Canaan, a land so prosperous it was said to be flowing with milk and honey. And through this people, God promised to bless the whole world. But Abraham's descendants, of whom Moses learned he was one, had not yet possessed that land. They had already blessed the whole world through Joseph, one of Abraham's descendants. He had come to Egypt and had risen to prominence, preparing for the terrible famine that God told him was about to happen. And when the famine came, Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, not only saved his own people, but blessed a whole starving world. There on Moses, on, on his mother's lap... Moses heard the same historical stories which you tell your children from the Bible. And Moses believed what he was taught. He believed it so strongly that all the learning of Egypt would never dissuade him. There, under Jochebed, his mother's watchful care, Moses' identity was formed. And before he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, He was a child of Abraham, he knew. He was one of God's covenant people, he knew. He was an heir of God's ancient promises, that he knew. Therefore, when as an adult Moses saw the Hebrew people, now slaves, suffering, it could not just be business as usual for him. It was not just a political necessity to preserve Egypt's cultural dominance. It was not just an economic necessity, cheap labor, which enabled Egypt to thrive. It was not just racial segregation, the reality of having a lower class of people as slaves. When Moses saw the Hebrew slaves suffering, he realized, those are my people. Poor and downtrodden as they were at the time, Moses knew they were the children of Abraham, the people of God. And though they appeared to be nobodies, against the backdrop of the magnificent Egyptian culture, Moses knew that a day was coming that God had promised they would inherit the earth. When those larger-than-life issues became clear, Moses had a choice to make. He could continue his life as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, a life of luxury power prestige or he could walk away from it all and cast his lot with the children of abraham that would be a life which looked rather insignificant at the present time it would be a life of being mistreated a life of uh, filled with disgrace a life sustained only by words of promise which god had given What Moses could not do, however, was to just go along and act as if he didn't know what he knew. For to continue his life of Egyptian luxury would be a sin against his true people, a sin against the covenant-making God that worked counter to his purposes. And so though he knew so little, By faith, Moses abandoned the treasures of Egypt in favor of God's promises. Dear people, we know so much more than Moses knew. Our children in Sunday school know more than Moses knew. We have the law. We have the prophets. We've seen them fulfilled in the coming of Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, the seed, the promised seed of Abraham. We've heard the gospel, the record of how Jesus did something actually quite like what Moses did. He left the glory of heaven and became a man. He lived among us and suffered with us, but unlike the rest of us, he did not sin. He pleased the Father. Nonetheless, he was obedient to the Father's plan to save us, obedient all the way to a death on the cross But there, as he died, he paid the debt of our sin that we might be forgiven. He was buried, but on the third day God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven, was given dominion over the whole earth. And now he is saving a people from every nation on earth who will believe in him. And when his gathered church is complete, he will come again to judge the wicked and to restore the whole earth. On that day, those found to be in him will populate a new heaven and a new earth forever. Those are glorious truths which Moses could not have imagined, and frankly, which we don't see all worked out yet either. But if he could abandon the great treasures of Egypt, based on the little he knew of God's plan, how much more ought we to be ready to abandon anything for the privilege A participation in God's glorious salvation. So this morning I challenge you with the example of Moses and its unfolding fulfillment in Jesus. Some of us are getting pretty old. Our life decisions were made a long time ago. For better or for worse, we're stuck with them. Now we just struggle to keep our priorities straight and to persevere to the end but you young people you young married people you kids you are just now setting the course of your whole life so what are you going to live for what will your life be about We live in the land of plenty with always the promise of more. And so without even thinking, our goal easily becomes to just get as much as we can and uh, live as nice as we can and be as popular and and, uh, uh, live in luxury as much as possible. But then what? Live in luxury a few years and die rich. That's it. The Lord wisely warns, charm is deceitful. Beauty is fleeting. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. No wonder Jesus said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So what about God's agenda? Where does that fit in your life? What about the church that Jesus loved enough to die for? What about His claim on your life? He is calling people to serve Him for the sake of, of saving the people for Himself. He's calling people to serve Him in all kinds of places, in all kinds of uh, with all kinds of different skills. Are you listening? to that call? Are you so obsessed with your own little plans that you don't care? Perhaps you think it would be too costly. Really? More costly than Moses' decision? I don't think so. More costly than Jesus' decision to lay aside his glory to go to the cross to save you? Like Moses, once we understand something of God's promises, we have decisions to make. We cannot unknow what we now know. We can ignore it <clears throat> and live for ourselves, or we can abandon whatever hinders us and give ourselves to the Lord. You see, the question is not, how can we possibly bring to ourselves to give up today's treasures No, the question is rather, do we understand the greater value of a life given to the promises of God? God is not trying to punish us by taking away our treasures. He is blessing us with promises infinitely better if only we have eyes to see it. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Great little proverb for practical living. But our text this morning holds before us a much greater, loftier truth. The missionary Jim Elliott had written it in his journal so- shortly before he died. He goes like this He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Everybody thinks Jim Elliot was the first one to think that up, but actually it was not original with him. In about 1680, Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, Henry, the famous Bible commentary, wrote this. He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. Oh, but Philip Henry, I didn't actually think that up. Actually, that's kind of what Jesus said in John 12, 25. The man who loves his life will lose it. That is, he gives up what he cannot keep. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is, he will gain what he cannot lose. But even 1,500 years or so before Jesus said that, Moses showed the world what it looks like to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose when by faith he abandoned the treasures of Egypt in favor of God's eternal promises. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it all sounds logical. Preach as well. But every one of us knows that the minute we're asked to say no to ourselves about anything, it's a huge battle. So while, Lord, uh, you call us to make clear-headed choices... We know that we even need grace to make such choices. For our hearts are slaves to self. Our hearts naturally just want self-aggrandizement, want wealth and pleasure and prestige. And trusting you is scary to us. But Lord, may we not squander the day and find ourselves down the road several decades, at the end of life, looking back, saying it was all wasted. Thank you for the example of Moses. May we walk in his ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.